Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Stephen Liu and Dr. Narjus Duma. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Narjas Duma. I'm the Associate Director of Cancer Care Equity and a medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, as well as a member of faculty at Harvard Medical School. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Bob Doble. Dr. Doble is a thoracic medical oncologist and the co-founder and chief scientific officer of RAIN Therapeutics. Bob, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Narjas. It's great to be with you today. So the first thing I think a lot of people are very interested in hearing is that you recently made a career change from academic practice to joining RAIN Therapeutics. You are the co-founder and now full-time chief scientific officer. Can you tell us a little bit about your career? How First, let's start. How do you choose lung cancer? How was your first interaction with lung cancer and when you decided to say, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah. So I had the fortune of having some fantastic mentors. I think, you know, mentorship is so critical and really at every job. And I was very, very lucky as internal medicine at University of Chicago to have Dr. Charlie Rudin as one of my first attendings. So back then he was at a uh, University of Chicago. And I think that was my first interaction. He was also like me, MD, PhD and physician scientist. And I think he really inspired me to think about lung cancer. I had other great mentors at University of Chicago, Dr. Everett Vokes, Dr. Ravi Salgia, and others, Dr. Hedy Kimmler, who's a mesothelioma expert. So I had a lot of wonderful mentors. And for me, you know, a lot of my co-fellows were, you know, choosing breast cancer and colorectal cancer and other specialties. And, you know, at that time, this is, you know, back in 2004, there'd just been kind of, you know, a raft of developments in colorectal cancer and everything else. And there hadn't really been much in lung cancer. And I thought it was a kind of wide open field where progress was desperately needed, right? So the, you know, erlotinib and gefitinib were in clinical trials, but it wasn't until sometime in that year, I think that the mutations were first discovered. So there was really a lot to be done. And I thought, here's a great opportunity and a disease that, you know, has a hint of, you know, molecular targeted therapeutics coming, but nothing really great for patients at that time. So that was what really launched me into lung cancer, a combination of what I saw as an opportunity to make a lot of hopeful developments. And boy, did we kind of surpass my wildest dreams in terms of developments in lung cancer. Still a lot to be done, of course. And that combination of mentorship, which was so critical, inspired by great people who came before me. You know, this is a common story that we hear about how important mentorship is. And sometimes we forget how the impact that you may have in a trainee just by being around, talking about the disease that you're very fascinating. I currently have a fellow that was interested in hematology, and now he's in clinic with me for the last three months. And he's like, lung cancer looks very interesting now. I'm like, yeah, like, let's just do this. What project do you want to do? So I think we always forget the impact that we can have in residents, fellows, medical students. Absolutely. And I bet you have mentored many people over the years. Yes. And and I- so... Now that we're talking about that career change, can you tell us a little bit about why you made the change and how was that? Yeah, it's always a challenging decision to make such a big career change. So, you know, I was uh, at University of Colorado for more than 12 years. 
During that time, you know, I co-founded this company and, and as we kind of grew and grew our pipeline and became more stable, I think there was a draw to do something new and different arena and, you know, perhaps work in some different research areas and apply, you know, some of the successful lessons that we've learned in, in targeted therapy and lung cancer. I think, you know, we take for granted the fact that we have so many fantastic, you know, drugs and, and opportunities to do precision medicine in lung cancer. I still think there's a lot of unmet need in, in other cancers. And so I think a lot of that helped drive my decision to try industry and branch out a little bit and do something different. And I think, you know, when we heard the news in the Twitter or social media community, we were less surprised because this is, you know, you are the co-founder of the company and you have been involved with this and developing these compounds for a long time. So I think it's like you were already at home, you just officially full-time at home. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a gradual process, but and one that I've been thinking about for a while in terms of kind of shifting over full-time. So it wasn't, you know, a complete overnight decision. And we can just can't wait to hear how Rain Therapeutics and, you know, with your leadership, we continue to help us advance the care of our patients with lung cancer. We are going to move a little bit to the targeted part that we're very interested to learn from you. So, Bob, NTRAC is an important genomic subset in lung cancer and oncology overall. We now have two FDA-approved targeted drugs for the treatment of cancer that harbor the NTRAC fusion, one approved in 2018, another one in 2019. Can you Tell us a little bit about the biology of these events. Absolutely. You know, so NTRAC gene fusions, first NTRAC is, we kind of refer to it as NTRAC. It's actually a family of three different genes, NTRAC 1, 2, and 3. They encode receptor tyrosine kinases that are called TRAC A, B, and C. Fortunately, they're in the same order. And they're similar to other receptor tyrosine kinases that, that I think all of us are very familiar with, like EGFR or MET or ALK or ROS1. And in fact, the gene fusion events are also very similar. They arrange from kind of large chromosomal rearrangements. And they bring, you know, two unrelated genes into one. So part of one gene at the five prime end, NTRAC fusion or the NTRAC gene at the other end. And that DNA rearrangement really does a couple of things. It, the end result is that it activates that kinase. And, and by doing that, it basically promotes all of the cancer properties that, you know, we think cell, unchecked cell division, proliferation, metastasis, and, and all of those. And the way that it does that is mechanistically, first of all, it expresses NTRAC. So NTRAC is typically a bit more restricted to neuronal tissues or tissues of neuronal origin. And so by having this kind of new gene and promoter up in front, it actually drives the expression of that. And then the other part is it actually drives dimerization. So a lot of the gene fusion partners that are involved in NTRAC fusions have dimerization domains. So they kind of drive constitutive um, coupling of these kinase domains, and that's what actually leads to activation. And really, you can think of them as very similar to, you know, ALK gene fusions, ROS1 gene fusions, RET fusions, et cetera. And I just really love how you were able to explain that in a way that even probably me as a first year resident somewhere many years ago could have understood that. So I think that's a superpower <laughs> to explain NTRAC in podcasts without PowerPoint in under two minutes. Thank you. Lots of practice. <laughs> you know, I think NTRAC, this is my own perception. It's like the unicorn of lung cancer. Like I'm always looking for it. I haven't been lucky enough. And I specialize in younger women with lung cancer. 
majority of my patients are younger women and everybody gets NGS. Even when looking, I haven't found this unicorn yet. Yeah, they're not common, but, but for every patient that has one, I think, you know, that it's so critical that we've developed drugs for these patients because, you know, every patient matters. And when we do find them, it's, it's great to have therapies. And I think it's clearly important that we find these events when they're present, as you mentioned, because of the therapeutic options. How should we be testing for these tumors for anthrax? Should be NGS, IJC, FISH, RNA, DNA? And this can be very complicated, not only for the trainees that listen to us, but you know, the doctors in the community have to learn so many things about so many different types of cancers. So we would love to hear from you. Which one is the best way to find this unicorn? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, we could probably spend hours talking about this, but I can, you know, kind of give you my high level thoughts on how I approach testing and, you know, what some of the advantages and disadvantages are. So all of the methods that you talked about are potential ways to identify. Now, you know, we'll start maybe with immunohistochemistry. You know, that's probably the least specific, right? So if that's looking for protein expression of one of the track proteins, and if you find evidence of expression, you really need to reflex that to some kind of sequencing assay to confirm that there's a fusion, because there can really be a lot of false positives by IHC. Fortunately, not too many false negatives, although, you know, it can miss some NTRAC3 fusion. That's something that I've importantly learned from some of my pathology colleagues like Dr. Jackie Heckman at Memorial Sloan Kettering and others. The way I am fish is actually not ideal. In my opinion, we actually pursued fish and we had a fantastic cytogeneticist at University of Colorado during the early part and mid part of my career, Dr. Layla Garcia. And we developed some fish assays, but we did see some high false positive rates for fish as well. It seems like maybe that region of the chromosome is a little bit unstable and generates a lot of breakages. So I, you know, I, I'm not sure that fish makes sense. My favorite assays are really comprehensive next generation sequencing assays because, and it's not just for detecting NTRAC fusions, it's really thinking about the entire landscape of, of alterations that we may find. So it's not just about NTRAC, it's really about what gives me the best coverage to identify EGFR mutations, BRAF mutations. Hopefully in the very near future, we'll have a drug for KRAS, right? We're anticipating that. So it's really thinking, you know, of course, ALG and ROS and RET gene fusion. So when I'm thinking about it, I want to do a test that has the best potential to identify all of these different alterations that may lead to either a clinical trial or better case, an approved therapy. So that's why I typically prefer comprehensive next generation sequencing. Now, when it comes to fusions, you know, the DNA versus RNA question is a good one. I think, you know, most of the assays that are out there are DNA based. I do believe that RNA based approaches are a little bit better for some of these fusions and that may carry over to, you know, rare fusions like NRG1 fusions and others, because it's a bit complicated, but the DNA-based sequencing has to cover such massive landscape in terms of genomic coverage, sometimes hundreds of thousands of base pairs that we have to sequence in introns to detect these, that RNA is a little bit better because you're really just detecting the product of the abnormal gene and it's abundant. Typically, RNA is expressed at high levels. You know, if I had to choose, I would typically do RNA-based uh, comprehensive NGS for fusion. They do tend to be, I think, a little bit more sensitive than some of the DNA. But, you know, I think if you're going for kind of your best overall assay, you know, a large panel comprehensive NGS is, is going to be very good. And, you know, I think that all makes sense because, you know, the broader the scope, the more chances are we to find these therapeutic options for our patients. I continue to repeat over and over again that 
the diagnosis of lone adenocarcinoma is not complete until you have your biomarker testing. Absolutely. It's so critical. I, you know, I couldn't agree more. It really has to be almost the first thing that you think of. And, and actually one of the, you know, talking about trainees, you know, when we're having them present to me, it kind of drives me crazy. If in the first sentence, I don't hear what their oncogene alteration is, even if they've been tested and negative, I want to hear that it's been done and attempted. And it's so critical to their care. Indeed, you know, this is concerning, particularly for unicorns like Entrac with COVID-19. The numbers are not up there, but we were already struggling for, you know, broad genomic testing aside of the panels, right? Because as we approve more and more therapies, the panels become very constrained. Like whatever gene you have in your panel, maybe next week there's a new one that may not be included. So it makes me safe. It makes me feel safe always to do, you know, a more broad testing as we're moving the field so fast. Absolutely. So now we want to, I really am very interested to learn how your relationship with NTRAC, with these unicorns started. You have characterized NTRAC fusions back in 2012. So how did this early involvement started with NTRAC, you know, from your cell lines and the lab portion all the way to where we are right now? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story that, you know, of course, it always built and on others' work, and there was a lot of kind of luck and interesting chances that happened along the way. But we were actually looking for novel alterations. So back in 2012, you know, as a practicing you know lung cancer oncologist, I was very interested in identifying novel targets because you know a lot of our never smoker younger patients would come in and they wouldn't have the typical EGFR, ALK, ROS1, and you know even RED at that stage we were looking for. So you know there was a lot of patients who you know we called kind of oncogene negative. You know they didn't have a KRAS, they didn't have BRAF. And so, you know, we thought one easy way to identify potentially new targets in lung cancer would be to take all of those pan-negative patients, right? So they weren't screening positive for kind of the typical players in lung cancer and do more comprehensive sequencing to identify potentially novel targets. And so one of my patients who, you know, had had multiple lines of therapy, a young mother of five, young mother of three kids, was pan-negative, and she was part of the study. And in her, we identified an NTRAC1 fusion. It was actually an NPRIP NTRAC1, never forget that. And the results came in about a week after ASCO in 2012. Again, remember almost exactly where I was when that happened. And so you know, looking at it right away, we knew we had something interesting. And it turns out NTRAC fusions had been kind of long ago described, but kind of buried and never really unearthed again, but they had never been described in lung cancer. They had been described actually in the early 80s as some of the early oncogene work being done to identify KRAS, for example. In fact, it was first called OncD, and it was found in a colorectal cancer patient, but no one had identified it in lung. And so, you know, we saw this as a clear opportunity. I could tell by looking at the sequencing reads that it had all the features that we were familiar with from ALK and ROS1 fusions in terms of preserving the kinase domain and frame. And so from there, we quickly started down the path of, you know, trying to prove that this was oncogenic, A, B, that it was druggable, and then getting you know, a drug potentially into the clinic. And it all moved very quickly from there. So I had a, again, I want to call out, you know, some of the people who did some of the really critical work that made this happen. I had a graduate student in my lab who was early on in her graduate career, Arya Vaishnavi. She's now a postdoc in, in Utah who did a lot of the biology work on this. On Lee um, in my lab, who derives all the cell lines. So we were fortunate enough to have this patient donate her uh, pleural effusion to derive a cell line and a, and a patient-derived xenograft. 
And that helped us really understand the biology. And we quickly demonstrated that it was oncogenic. So we moved on to the next step of finding a drug. I was making calls left and right because I actually wanted to find something that you know might work in this patient. Unfortunately, we never did before she passed away. Part of the serendipity here is that one of the postdocs in my lab had previously been at, at a Ray Biofarm. And he's like, you know, I'm pretty sure that they have a track inhibitor program, but they were developing it for arthritis. It turns out that the track receptors modulate pain sensation. And so they were actually developing these drugs for potential use in arthritis pain. And so I, you know, I took me and I think a couple other people from the lab up there showed them our very preliminary data and said, we'd really love to test, you know, your track inhibitors in these models and see if there's efficacy. And, and they were gracious enough to do that. And they actually were very selective inhibitors. Uh, one of those was Array 470. People now know that drug better as, as Loxo 101 or Larotrectinib. And so that really kind of launched this field. And when we were, you know, in the, a company formed around this, so a company was started and they licensed the drug from Array. And, you know, when we were talking about development, you know, they, I think they may be thinking about going just in lung cancer. And I said, well, first of all, you know, it's, it's probably too rare in one disease to do this. We, you know, there's no reason to think that it shouldn't work in others. And by that time, we had collected a few other models in different tumor types, actually a colorectal cancer model and a leukemia model. And we saw efficacy of these drugs in those as well. And we're like, look, the biology says that these are oncogene drivers. It doesn't matter if the tumor comes from the breast or the colon or the lung you know, this drug should work, we should pursue it in, in all types of cancers. And that was, you know, I think a, a somewhat radical idea back in, in 2012 and 2013. We got actually a lot of pushback on that. People thought, well, you know, BRAF inhibitors had already shown lack of activity in colorectal cancer. And so people always kind of threw that example out. Turns out now that BRAF and colorectal cancers is the exception to the rule. It actually BRAF mutations and other tumors respond just as well to the BRAF mech inhibitors that we think about. So, you know, early on, we pushed that agnostic strategy and a company was launched. The phase one trial started. We were one of the early sites. Again, just by luck, the first patient identified on the phase one trial that had an NTRAC fusion was a sarcoma patient from Portland, Oregon. And she drove her family down. She was actually another mother of three, drove her family down to University of Colorado and like moved in for a month because it was a phase one study, lots of PK and you know weekly visits and all of that uh, fun stuff. I'm happy to say she had a phenomenal response. I get a yearly update actually right around this time of the year um, when she passes her year landmark. So she passed her five-year landmark about a year ago and was still on uh, larotrectinib and really was a fantastic story. And, and from that one patient, I knew that this was you know, ultimately going to be a success. So that's the, the kind of you know, compressed version of you know, how we did it. And you know, we were lucky. We happened to be studying ALK and Ross fusion. So we kind of had all the tools at hand to you know, understand what this was when it came in. And I love that story. I think it's fascinating in which, you know, you move this from very early all the way to the development. It's like having, you know, your kid or something that you're developing so close. And around that question is my next question. So you were, you know, designing this trial that was agnostic. And while now, like we have seen the papers, we have seen the reports, what were some of the major challenges, you know, to develop a compound that's agnostic? Like, we know it's very rare in lung cancer, but it can apply to all these patients. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, luckily, we early on, we had cancer models derived from patients, you know, cell lines and xenografts that really demonstrated activity. And for me, it was a small number. But I think the power of, of having those unique models from different tumor types really spoke volumes about the potential 
for this drug to work kind of regardless of the of the tumor type and so that that was you know a, a huge advantage and you're right the agnostic idea back then was it, it was challenging one of the challenges was that uh sequencing isn't as kind you know we want even more patients to have comprehensive next generation sequencing today but you can imagine back in 2014 when this trial started there weren't nearly as many patients getting sequencing. So, you know, we were talking to companies like Foundation and others who could identify these to try and help us find patients for the clinical trial. I think it took us almost a year to find the first patient with an NTRAC fusion back then. And nowadays it would happen much more quickly, but, but that was a big challenge as well because uptake was a lot less uh, back then. And I strongly believe, you know, having this agnostic approach is what allow the compound to move forward because otherwise you know, you will continue to be in the small sample size and, you know, oh, we only have these few patients. And then, you know, going to registration, which is a few patients and but having it such a broad, even for pediatrics, I think it allowed the compound to move forward and be part of our portfolio. And, and I think that's, that was the key for this, this study and in general for the two drugs. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, even though there was, you know, only a handful of patients, you know, in each tumor type in the registrational data, the efficacy was so overwhelming that fortunately, you know, the FDA was very forward looking in, in terms of saying, look, this is, you know, how can we not approve this? I, I don't know what went behind their thinking, but I think, you know, the data was so good in so many different indications that it, it was clearly just a home run. And, you know, you play a key role in the development of little tractinib. But you, you were also the global PI for the registrational trial or the other approved agent, Entractinib. So how that was that relationship, right? We were, we led Entractinib and Entractinib. So how do you manage to, to work with the two compounds that were being developed closer to each other? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit challenging. You know, we took part in the phase one development of, of Laratrectinib, but then, you know, I moved over to Entrectinib. And there was a couple of reasons that I was really interested in, in Entrectinib. One, you know, it was a CNS penetrant compound and, and being a thoracic medical oncologist, brain metastases are, are such a, a critical aspect of our disease. And, and we felt that we really needed a CNS penetrant NTRAC inhibitor as well. And so that was, that was a key factor. And of course, you know, I had a longstanding interest in, in ROS1 gene fusions. And because entrectinib was also, you know, planning to look towards a registrational path in, in ROS1 positive non-small cell lung cancer, I felt it was important to have a CNS penetrant drug there that could also address brain metastasis. So I think, you know, from two standpoints, the entrectinib story was very attractive. And yeah. And, you know, we just saw the recent data about entrectinib, and I have used entrectinib for ROS1, you know, and I think compared to crisotinib, a offers more options and of course the CNS penetrants. So while we're talking about NTRAC, you know, we'd love to just hear from you about the future of Entrectinib for the ROS1 as we learn and we get more and more data in this group of patients. Yeah, I mean, again, I think a lot of this is, you know, trying to treat the whole patient. And, you know, unfortunately, crizotinib was a fantastic drug. It was really a, you know, a groundbreaking uh, development for ALK and ROS1 tumors. And unfortunately, one of the limitations was, uh, you know, lack of really good CNS penetration. And so I think that's, you know, a major advantage for entrectinib as we think about our patients. And, you know, there was this kind of early data that suggested maybe brain mats weren't all that common. You know, I've seen, you know, literally dozens and dozens. I've said before that I think my record for one clinic day is that I've seen seven Ross one patients in a single day in, in clinic. And sadly, these patients, you know, have brain metastases at a very high frequency, either at diagnosis or they develop them later. 
And so I think starting with a CNS penetrant drug, you know, may delay the need for radiation and, and other therapies. You know, it's sad even a, a couple of the patients that I saw on, on the intractinib trial, you know, who were seen out in the community got whole brain radiation before, you know, we knew that they were ROS1 positive and eligible for a trial and, and you know, suffered cognitive uh, decline, you know, because, you know, we were able to extend their lives meaningfully with these great targeted agents, but still a lot of cognitive defects, uh, you know, associated with whole brain radiation over the long run. And so, you know, these drugs will hopefully minimize that in the future. Um, as we talk about these two agents, I think, you know, one of the challenges is also they're new and they're Averse event profile may be a little bit different compared to the, you know, the TKIs that we feel more comfortable, like osimertinib. Like everybody knows about osimertinib rash and diarrhea, right? But entractinib and lerotractinib may have this different averse event profile that make you more uncomfortable. Like for me, the changes in taste with entractinib were very unique for my patients. So what would your recommendation for those community doctors that are getting to learn how to use these two, these two new agents that are here to stay and they continue to gain more and more plays in the lung cancer were? Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely correct that these have a very unique side effect and toxicity profile. And, you know, I think a lot of this is, you know, just pre-educating our patients on some of these side effects, you know, so track inhibitors, you know, whether it's larotrectinib or entrectinib or some of the newer ones that are being developed like rebotrectinib, you know, have somewhat new side effects, uh, perioral numbness and, and taste loss. They can cause uh, weight gain that can be significant in a proportion of patients. It's not clear why it only happens in some, but you know, you can sometimes see 30, 40, 50 pound weight gain that's not all necessarily edema and you know, thought to be related to the track B inhibition component and maybe associated with hyperphagia. In fact, one of my early patients on the on one of the phase one studies said, everything tastes like cardboard, but I still want to eat as much pizza as possible. You know, it's just, there's some odd side effects. You can get dizziness with these. So I think instructing patients that it's coming, they can have some slurred speech or word finding. And so, you know, letting them know in advance, I think it's just half the battle really. If they understand it and they know that they're reversible, that it's not going to be a permanent change, but these drugs have real benefits. I think most patients are willing to try and uh, deal with them. You know, you can do dose holds and dose reductions that sometimes help. And so I think a lot of those strategies really help. <laughs> I have to admit, I forgot once to tell a patient who is on a dose hold, the other really critical thing is that you can get some really weird rebound pain from holding the drug for the first couple of days. And again, I think it has to do with that kind of, you know, early development of, you know, for arthritic pain. But if you withhold it, they can get some severe body aches over the first, you know, 24 to 72 hours and either redosing or just, you know, 72 hours to let the drug clear and, and let your body adjust usually takes care of it. But I forgot to tell a patient once when she was holding, cause we had to hold it for dizziness and she ended up in the ER with a pain crisis and probably could have been averted if I'd remembered to, you know, warn her about this. Yes. And, you know, I have experienced the weight gain for my patients. So this is a different ballpark now with the new agents, right? We are we, these new agents of which, you know, as thoracic oncologists, we always worry about weight loss. That's like the main thing. Had you lost any weight? And now we're like learning about, okay, let's talk about this. We need to figure out that your diabetes doesn't get out of control. So it has been a learning experience for many of us as our practice has changed from weight loss, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia to like, you may gain weight, your hair may turn gray, and you know, you may not know where you are one day. So I think learning and teaching our patients about how these agents bring this new, new group of side effects is extremely important. 
So as we are coming to the end of our conversation, you have accomplished so much already, and you're highly regarded in the translational community. We have many trainees and junior faculty, including myself. Can you speak to us about that balance between clinical and basic science work? Because sometimes we feel like they cannot get married, but you have found a way to be very successful with both of them next to each other. Yeah. I mean, again, I, you know, this goes back to mentorship and luckily I have some great role models in thinking about how to do this. You know, again, you know, two people come directly to mind, uh, both Charlie Rudin and Robbie Salgia, both MD, PhDs. And, and one of the ways that, you know, I learned to model my career based on them is that, like, look, you can just, you know, do one day a week of clinic, you know, you can focus on one disease type or, you know, kind of a group of diseases, right? I, you know, treat non-small cell, you know, thymoma and mesothelioma, but by being hyper-focused on that, you know, very narrow set of cancers, you know, I was able to be, I think, a good doctor, right? Because I didn't have to kind of necessarily keep up with all the latest developments in, in every tumor type. And then, you know, the other days of the week, I was running my laboratory. And again, I was able to, you know, utilize a variety of kind of, you know, different levels of trainees, graduate students, postdocs, PhD scientists, lab technicians who were really fantastic. And also lean heavily on my basic scientists colleagues at, at, you know, for me at the University of Colorado. So collaborating with PhD researchers, you know, who help review my grants and, and do those things. So I think it was really about, you know, kind of setting very clear goals on how I wanted to structure my career. You know, I didn't bother getting certified in hematology because I was like, why would I ever do this? I'm never going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to focus on lung cancer. I don't really need to, you know, be spending time on, you know, benign heme service or, or other things and trying to be, you know, very kind of focused on lung cancer. And then I was very fortunate enough to kind of marry the clinic and the lab, you know, the same types of patients. I, you know, had a large practice of never smoker patients with, you know, as I mentioned, I, you know, once saw seven Ross one patients in a day, you know, we had a great program and, and, you know, great reputation for having great clinical trials. And so I was able to kind of marry my lab work with what I was doing in the clinic. So it all seemed kind of seamless. And, you know, I was always thinking about the same problems and, and thinking about how we can make care better for my lung cancer patients that I was seeing every week in the clinic. So, you know, as I said, I think that strategy helped me immensely in, you know, not going crazy with, <laughs> with uh, a million different uh, commitments and, and other things. Learning to say no is really important. I think that's important. Important advice. I think we get to say yes during fellowship and we need to learn how to say no. I think it's harder than learning how to say yes. So right before we finish, we'd like to, we love to hear from our guests about a very unique memory for ISLC. It can be at the World Conference on Lung Cancer or any other ISLC meeting. Do you have that funny story or experience that you still remember years after? Well, you know, I've had so many fantastic experiences at World Long. I think, you know, I've, I've been to many, many over the years, and now it's gone to a yearly event. And as much as I love to travel around the world, you know, I've been to Amsterdam, Sydney, Yokohama for World and, and Vienna and, and others. I'm not leaving anyone out. But I have to say, you know, probably my funniest memory is when we hosted at Denver. Uh, so we were, I was on the program committee. 
And of course, as, as the local organizing committee, you know, I got stuck with, uh, you know, I'm sure many of my colleagues had the same experience, I was stuck with one of the final chairing of sessions on like, you know, a late, well, I guess it was probably a late Wednesday night. And as we completed the session and wrapped up questions and let everyone go home, there was still actually good attendance late in the day. I felt like they were turning the lights off as I was like walking down the hall of the convention center in Denver. So I, I feel like I really, you know, shut down the WCLC and in Denver in 2015. That's a wonderful story. That was also my first work conference on lung cancer in Denver. And I had an auto presentation. It was my first auto presentation ever. Oh, yeah. So that's also a very special work conference on lung cancer for me. Yeah. So wrapping up this podcast, I would like to thank you, Bob, for your time, insights, and to thank the audience for listening. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it in social media with friends, colleagues, Stay safe and be well. Thank you. It was wonderful talking with you, Narges. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.